Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we got a late start today because I was checking in some code. And, you know, there are worse things in this world than doing real work. I had a merge conflict, speaking of James Montemagno. Wow. Speaking of merge conflicts, yeah. Well, it wasn't my conflict, but uh, it, it happens when you have a big team and everybody's working on the same stuff that, you know, yeah, yeah, you huh. can get the latest code, make your change, and go to check it in in five or ten minutes, and there's going to be a merge conflict. <laughs> there's going to be something changed since then already. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's awesome. It's like a game of uh, who's first. Yeah, but it's it's great to be working on a team that's moving that kind of velocity. Oh, yeah. constant code updates. Yeah. That's pretty it's, cool. It's crazy right now. All right, well, let's roll the music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, this is a really cool GitHub repository called mm -hmm. 100 Days of Machine Learning Code. Wow. As proposed by Siraj Raval. Hope I didn't mess up your name, Siraj. And this is basically everything that you need to know about machine learning in steps with code and really colorful slides. And uh, I believe he's on day, what, 40? Yeah, 43. That's cool. So he's going going through 100 days of ML code. And it's really well done. I got to say that, you know, I see a lot of these things, and some of them are, are boring and not inviting at all. Not this. This is good. Good graphics, good colors, like, well explained. That's good stuff. 100 days is a lot. That's a lot of work and a lot of, uh, of, of practice. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Sure is. Awesome, well, if you're dude. serious yeah. about it, there you go. Yeah, that's a whole lot of machine learning. <laughs> yeah. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Knowing we were going to talk a little Windows stuff, I went back to a show we recorded around Build with Raymond Chen and Jason Watson talking about Windows sets. Oh, yeah. Um, which is an interesting conversation. It's, it it's just not, you know, back when there was a Windows team, remember back then? Uh, they, <laughs> you know, there was this. It, it was interesting to see the Windows guys sort of engaging more, not just showing a finished product, but saying, hey, we have this idea around tabs and sets mm -hmm. and things, and we're experimenting with it. That conversation was kind of cool. Yeah. Got a lot of comments. But this particular comment is from Dominic Jancic, who says, and this is about three months ago, I've been using virtual desktops as my personal laptop since at least a year now. It was a huge boost to my productivity when combined with Windows hibernation and Chrome tabs. I'm a working and studying guy, so being able to switch quickly between my entertainment desktop to one of my three different development projects, all with already open windows, makes a huge difference. And the wow. ease of creating a fresh desktop when there is need to start something new is a huge win for me. But there is one issue, which was mentioned in this episode, that is still working and consuming resources, which is often a very good thing. But if it was possible to freeze and put the whole, quote, desktop on the shelf, that would be the killer feature for me. But right. I'm afraid that Windows sets, uh, as its integration at the tab level, would not actually do what it, we needed to do. Mm. Yeah. You want like a, a snapshot. Well, this, I think, is exactly what we talked about was this idea of I, I have all my windows laid out the way I want them laid out for this particular project. And I want that, you know, mode reduced to an icon. So it's like, click this and boom, there, there's everything right where right. we were. You know, this, yeah. this sort of freeze on in place thing. And that's, I think, what Dominic's uh, wanting too. So I can't argue with him. I like that idea. Yeah, good idea. 
So Dominic, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We drag him to the trash. I'm sorry, <laughs> the recycle bin. Did I say the trash? Oh, yeah, my God. It's been no so long. Anymore. There's no trash. When was the last time you like emptied your recycle bin? Mm. It happens every so when I drag something over there where it says I can't even fit this in the recycle bin, we're just gonna delete it now. <laughs> like okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the the discs are so big, They're like so I've darn never big. Yeah. it's been a long time since I've had to clean up my disc, my system disc. I went to record a Hansel Minutia for the first time in a year and mm-hmm. uh, he blue screened his machine as we were setting up. And so, of course, derailed the entire conversation. But he was forced to do a check disc, and his boot drive is two flipping gig terabytes. Right? Oh. So, please stand by. Was he recording with his machine, or did he have a separate recorder? Because that would have been gold. He was recording with his machine. So, uh, uh, we we still ended up streaming a bunch of it up to YouTube. So, there was it was pretty funny. That's good. Yeah. We also discovered that with a Google Hangout, even if the guy who set it up goes down like he did, you stay on. So I didn't mm. know I was still streaming over YouTube, and I was laughing to myself. I'll bet that guy blue screen. I'll bet you anything he blue screen. And then I get a message from him. <laughs> I blue screen. It's like, yep, called it. <laughs> Funny stuff. Happens. All right, let's let's uh, let's bring Immo on here. Immo Landworth has been on the show before. Uh, he's working as a program manager at Microsoft on the .NET platform, and this includes the base class libraries, the portability mechanisms, and open source. Welcome back, Immo. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, thanks for being here again. It's a um, Windows compatibility pack is your latest thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we shipped this almost, I think, six months ago now. Um, so the idea is that with .NET Core 2.0, we added much more API service to .NET Core to make it easier for people to port the existing applications to .NET Core. Yeah. And, um, of course, one of the primary reasons we built .NET Core was we wanted to have a cross-platform story, right, so that you can write your website in a spinet and have them run in a Docker container running on Linux or something, right? And um, but our existing customers are, you know, starting on the .NET framework, which was Windows only. Yeah. So a good chunk of the code is using Windows technologies. And so we thought about how we approach this with giving people more access to Windows technologies while still remaining as much cross-platform as we possibly can. And so what we ended up doing was to say, well, what if we give you a NuGet package? that is um, essentially wrapping up all the Windows APIs that we have and provide them in a nice cross-platform fashion, right? Effectively, you can just reference the package and then you get access to about 34 NuGet packages, I think, mm-hmm. that um, provide some Windows-only technologies, some cross-platform technologies. And so you just drop this one thing in and then you get an additional, I think, 21, 22,000 APIs or something like that. Wow. Um, and that includes all your usual friends, like, you know, the Windows event log, um, uh, some of the uh, WCF stuff, uh, huh. SQL Server, um, a bunch of other stuff that people are used to over the years. Now, I wonder if um, the things that are Windowsy that are absolutely having, having to run on Windows, like, uh, you know, the enterprise manager stuff, does that, do you have like mocks where things won't work? cross-platform just at least so that you have the interfaces so yeah so if you look at the like i wrote a blog post and trying to explain what our philosophy there is 
So there's some stuff like the Windows registry, for example, where mocking really isn't an option, right? I mean, mm. I think Mono did this at some point where they said, well, we can just implement the registry APIs over INI files on disk, right? <laughs> yeah. Yikes. So that sort of works when people use the registry as a glorified you know, file storage, right? But many people use the registry to find out information about the operating system, right? right? So they go to HKLM, ask what the current Windows version is or something like that. Mm. And you can't really make this work in a cross-platform fashion and with you know, <laughs> some crazy yeah. gymnastics, right? Right. So the registry that we provide is Windows only. And uh, so by Windows only, I really mean we have an implementation for cross-platform, but that implementation just throws platform not supported exception. Okay. So the idea here is that you can write code that says, if I'm running on Windows, call the registry APIs. Right. And if I'm not running on Windows, don't call the registry API. Right. Right. And meanwhile, all the interfaces are there because so nothing's going to blow up. Correct. So like you, you basically have access to the APIs. So the JIT compiler will not fail with you know, unresolved methods or anything. Right. But if you call the APIs, they will actually explode. And so clearly that is not something we want to promote as the... You know, this is the this is the way you should write apps. <laughs> but it seems like the best way to do it, though. Yeah, I mean, like if you need to have access to Windows technologies, then yes, I would say like if you write a cross-platform app today, maybe don't take a dependency in the registry at all, right? Right. Um, yeah. And then the way you would do it, you would just say, you know, where do I have to store my information? And then you would, I don't know, let's say you want to store some user settings, you would find a config file, and then you would have the exact same APIs and the technologies on Linux and Windows, and so you just use let's say an XML file and you just use an XML reader writer to store your settings. Sure. So if you can help it, don't introduce Windows only APIs for areas where it doesn't make sense, right? Like for some areas, it clearly makes sense, but I would say for things like their settings, probably not. Well, and, and again, I, th I think this is the right approach because you're talking about customers who are porting their apps from Windows to .NET Core. Right. So there you go. The, these apps are are bound to have some of these Windows only things in them, right? And the nice thing with an if check is, you know, if you you know deep in your bowels of your application, you have a third party component uses the registry, you can just guard the call very high up your stack and say, you know, if I'm not running on Windows, don't even go down that path at all, right? right? And you don't have to re-implement, you know, potentially third party libraries, yeah, just so you can run on Linux. And um, so that's basically the approach we have taken. And then there's some other stuff that could be cross-platform today, but isn't for implementation reasons. A good example here is uh, directory services, which is just a way to talk to an LDAP server. Right, yeah. And uh, so this could be cross-platform, but the way we implemented it in .NET, I don't know, V1 days, was by p-invoking into Windows that, that does the LDAP calls for us. Yeah. So <laughs> the implementation of directory service right now just relies on Windows. So we could make part of it available cross-platform, but we haven't done this yet. So... Part of our effort was to, you know, let's, let's get as much as we can. And then, you know, if there's more desire to make things cross-platform that isn't today, then, you know, based on customer feedback, we will invest in that area. Um, and if not, then, you know, <laughs> if we haven't done the work. Um, so that's basically the, uh, the current state. And then if you look at .NET Core 3.0, which is what we'll ship next year, we even extend this Windows uh, technology set even further to, to, to the UI stacks as well. So... And on a core 3.0, you will have access to WinForms and WPF, which, you know, very ginormous uh, Windows technologies. Yeah. And same question there I receive on the blog all the time is like, why is it not available cross-platform or is it available cross-platform? So these things next year will not be available cross-platform. They will be Windows only as they are today. They're just ported from .NET Framework to .NET Core. 
so that you can write .NET Core based desktop applications. So you get all the benefits of .NET Core. You will be able to deploy self-contained. You will be deployed with a shared framework if you want to. Uh, you get all the investments you've done in performance areas like you know I/O and uh, you know file system and many other things. Um, you get all the community contributions we did. Uh, you know, part of our open source work. And so you have a modern uh, technology essentially underneath your desktop app, and you get all the performance benefits. Now, why do we not make a cross-platform? Well, part of it is because it's ginormous amount of work to do that, and doing cross-platform in general is hard, and it's even harder when it's a UI stack, right? That's oh, when sure. you know it's not just you know drawing rectangles, right? It's also the the metaphors that you have to nail, right? I mean. My, my canonical example is on Windows, the OK button is on the left-hand side and the cancel button is on the right-hand side right. versus on Mac that's the other way around. So yeah. those are the things that you have to think about when you design a cross-platform live stack. And there really are, I mean, there are a few offerings out there today that do cross-platform, but they all have different trade-offs, right? You know, Miguel talked about this high-fidelity, low-fidelity thing. Um, you know, when you take an electron app, it's just a website, essentially. So you have low-fidelity, but, you know, reach. And then you have things like, you know, custom UI for every operating system, which is a lot of work on your end, but then you look native on all operating systems, right? right? And so we don't know what our story there is yet. Maybe we have an offering at some point. Currently, we don't have one, but we still want to be able to give existing customers as many of the benefits of the new stack as we can. Mm. Um, and of course, then long-term, we will figure out what the story is. But I would be shocked if you make WPF or WinForms as they are today available cross platform yeah. uh, at any point in time because I think we will probably be better off building a new UI stack at that point that is right. actually designed from the get go for cross platform and it probably will have demo elements in it or whatever. But you know, you you think about the control set and many other things from a cross platform standpoint from day one. And that's that's quite hard. Well and there are already a few ways to do that. But yeah, you're right. Uh, there isn't any need for Windows Forms and WPF to go cross plat. I don't think anyway. But if you were going to do it, your first step would be to put those UI elements into a separate package so that they could be developed independently for each of those platforms. Right. I mean, like that's basically the the Xamarin Forms approach, right? Right. Like in Xamarin Forms, they basically wrap the UI provider from the operating system and they give you, you know, what they call duplo blocks, right? These very high level building blocks like a button or, you know, um, a multi-page view and then on on windows phone it used the pivot control and versus on mac it would use the tab you know tabular control so you basically pick up the metaphors that make sense for right. each operating system but you express them in some sort of agnostic way right yeah. so you find some sort of higher level language and then you know if you want to customize you just you know tweak it you know for each operating system individually and that's kind of the same thing we do in class libraries today i mean like i said like the the, the registry example is where you write some if if-based logic, right, and then the next step would be uh, in in Visual Studio with the new project system. You can use what we call multi-targeting, so you can configure your project to build multiple times. So you have one project and that is built for .NET Framework and build again for .NET Core, mm. and then build again for Xamarin, and then build again for UWP. So at that point, you can also do pound if you know conditional compilation in your source code, and you can, you can say if I'm on UWP, call the UWP let's say, device APIs to access the GPS. If I'm on uh, Android, then use the Android APIs. Right. If I'm on iOS, use the iOS APIs. And so this way you can write yourself basically wrappers around you know, specific services that are OS-specific mm. and expose them in some sort of agnostic you know, 
.NET API, let's say you have a method called get GPS coordinates, it just returns a tuple of two, you know, doubles in it. And then you can call this API from all your business logic and don't have to worry about how you get the GPS coordinates for operating system. And that's kind of what uh, my friend James did um, uh, with their new, forgot what the, what the official name now is. It used to be called Kaboodle, which is effectively a bunch of, uh, you know, Xamarin Essentials, that's what it's called, uh, a bunch of, you know, things everybody uses like GPS or, you know, touch or many other things. And they give you right. uh, a .NET API so you don't have to do it yourself. Right. And I think that's kind of, I think, the role we are taking, like making more and more things portable while also not hiding the operating system entirely and saying, yep, if you need more fidelity, then by all means, access the operating system's APIs directly. There's some great community stuff out there too, like Uno, oh, yeah. know, the, where, they guys, where the guys took the whole uh, UI stack of UWP and ported it across all platforms. So now you write it for UWP and then you just recompile it for everything else. Sort of, sort of like Xamarin Forms, but using a, a more standard XAML library. Yeah, I've talked to the guy at Bill. Like, it was a very impressive demo that he that he showed me. Yeah. Um, where basically, yeah, you have normal demo and it renders in the browser, and it's it looks pretty pretty compelling. Oh, that's ooey ooey, right? You mean we? Yeah, we <laughs> ooey we. <laughs> yeah, we is in the browser, and Uno is um, UWP based. Yeah, and like it's a uh, it's quite interesting to see where these things are going. Um, and I mean, there's many projects like that, right? There's, uh, there's WebAssembly coming as well. The yeah. internet guys are building this thing called Blazor, which is effectively Razor, but rendered on the client side of the WebAssembly. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's, there's, there's many more ways you can skin that cat and provide effectively UI uh, across the board. And, um, you know, many people have asked me as well, like, why is Microsoft not building this one way of doing things? And I think... Honestly, like these times are kind of over at this point. Mm. It's not so much, you know, Microsoft doesn't have the power or anything. It's just, you know, when .NET Framework was created originally, there was just the PC, right? And right. the PC was, a, you know, a unified form factor, right? The displays would get bigger, the hardware would get faster, and this space and, you know, screen real estate really wasn't an issue. There's just more and more and more of everything. And now we see it's much more diversified, right? Now you have different cell phones, you know, different tablet form factors, you have, you know, washing machines and like fridges with displays. And, you know, it's really hard to come up with the one way of doing things and then, you know, assume that you can build an application model that, that, that makes everybody happy. Right? Mm. I think that just doesn't work anymore. If you want your customers to be happy, you kind of have to build an application that makes sense for a particular purpose. And that usually requires more diverse tools as well. So, you know, sometimes it's a website, sometimes it's a native mobile app sometimes it's you know a desktop app with you know buttons and you know keyboard and mouse and sometimes it's touch and so building one application model for everybody nothing works and often they're looking to switch to other options later too it's like we started out building it for this you know just on on browser but now we want to be on phones oh and we you know want to work great on tablets and uh, can yeah. we get it on the xbox can we make it work across chromecast like it goes on and on and on people are asking for more and more there Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, guys, hold that thought right there while we take this minute for a very important message. Save the date for .NET Conf 2018, September 12th through 14th. .NET Conf is a free three-day virtual developer event co-organized by the .NET community and Microsoft. Over the course of three days, you can enjoy a wide selection of live sessions that feature speakers from the community and .NET product teams. These are the experts in their field, and .NET Conf is a chance to learn, ask questions live, and get inspired for your next software project. 
You will learn to build for web, mobile, cloud, desktop, games, services, libraries, and more for a variety of platforms and devices, all with .NET. There are sessions for everyone, no matter if you are starting out or a seasoned engineer. Expect presentations on .NET Core and ASP.NET Core, C Sharp, F Sharp, Azure, Visual Studio, Xamarin, and much more. Head to www.dotnetconf.net. That's .netconf.net to learn more and tune in. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. And that's Imo Landworth. And we're talking about the Windows compatibility pack and all the problems that it solves and the 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 problems inherent in taking something like .NET that started out as Windows-centric and moving it to an open-source world. And, you know, the black eyes along the way. Things change, and they have to change. So this is a very welcome uh, addition to the to the family because it means that people can take their Windows-centric .NET apps and port them to .NET Core, and at least you can get something to compile, and then you can start paring down, um, you know, the things that aren't very open sourcey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, some people have also brought up that the Compat Pack brings a whole bunch of legacy stuff, like things that we have abandoned. Right. And uh, the reasons there are the same, right? Like, you, if you have an existing app that works and it's ten years old, sure, you use legacy technology because you used what was current ten years ago, but it works. And if the only thing you have to do every once in a while do a you know, minor touch-ups here and there, it's just not good investment to refactor the whole thing into something uh, completely different. Right. Right? Sure. And so, same thing here. If you could take an existing .NET Framework you know, web app or, or desktop app and have it largely work the exact same way as today, but you now benefit from, let's say, the runtime just being faster, the deployment being you know, X-copy rather right. than relying on a global machine install, then you know you get a lot of benefits for pretty much you know or very minimal effort on your end, right? And that's generally a good thing. Um, at the same time, yes, it's, it would be nice if we could remove the legacy APIs from the framework and have everybody use the right APIs. But I mean, people always say like just delete the APIs. But the reality is that if you know we have billions and billions of apps out there that are written by millions and millions of customers, yeah. then if we start from scratch, then you basically also start with zero customers, and that's just not a good strategy for .NET all up. And that's why, you know, in 2.0 and with 3.0, we add much, much more of the existing API surface back to make it easier. While, of course, we will still say if you want to build a cloud-scalable app, maybe don't use the registry, maybe you shouldn't use, uh, you know, some of the old performance counter APIs and other things that make you think slow. But, you know, if you have an existing in-house app that is used by 10 customers a day, um, then, you know, who cares, right? So, like, there's a there's clearly a continuum there as well. And so one of the things we also try to figure out is how we can make it easier for people to take existing code, have it work, while also promoting that some APIs they're using are legacy and they should move to something else. And um, in the past, we have been using the obsolete attribute for that, but that doesn't work super well for various reasons. So we're now trying to move more towards the Dwarfsland Analyzer-based model that has a bit more contextual information and then gives you more actionable and fewer warnings while still nudging people towards the right APIs, right? So the idea here is if you're a completely new developer and you start a new project and you copy and paste some code from Stack Overflow and you immediately get a squiggle that says, dude, this API is really obsolete to use this other API over here, maybe even with a smart fixer where you just control dot and it automatically divides your code to the modern API, then I think we have a pretty good solid offering where we can take you know, new developers onto the right path from day one 
while we also make it so that for existing customers, it works. That would be awesome if the error messages started with the word dude. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Just like the helpful messages, dude, what are you doing? Dude, <laughs> reporting it now. <laughs> I'd be in favor of that. <laughs> yeah, I, awesome. I, I do like that idea of, you know, you've cut and pasted from too old of a uh, Stack Overflow post, right? That's, that's a 2008 post, man. Don't use that. That's a mistake. <laughs> dude dude i recognize that code <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you go go find a newer post i know this the, you're, you're, the copy you're looking for is out there it's just not this <laughs> yeah i I'm, I'm looking at your blog post from november of last year where you where you announced the compatibility pack and there were a bunch of the components that were marked as still coming rather than available has have those things moved along? Yes, I believe everything that is marked as coming has been shipped already. Oh, wow. Um, also, the Compact Pack is stable at this point. So, it's, I think 201 is the latest version, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and, and 201 is like brand new and fresh. It's only been like the past week that 201 came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it'd be, I think the 201, uh, sorry, the, two, yeah, the 201 was also longer, and 201 is something we just recently updated. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing with the Compact Pack is also is that it's what we call a meta package. So the Compact Pack is basically empty. It's a, it's a NuGet package that just references other NuGet packages. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that if you start with an existing code base, you just want to maximize the number of APIs you can have. Right? Right. So just you know, get the compiler errors down from hundreds to maybe 10. Right. And then as you're maintaining your app, you probably want to remove the reference to the entire Compact Pack with references to the actual things you're using. Oh, the cool. idea here being that you don't want to, you know, increase the debt over time. You want to reduce the debt over time, right? Mm. So at least contain the damage, if you will. Don't, you know, if you don't use the registry, don't reference it, right? right. <laughs> if you don't use performance counters, don't introduce it, right? And so the idea here is that, you know, if you can do that, then that's, that's even better. And then you can make progress towards getting the number of those dependencies, maybe even to zero and replace them with modern technologies if you, if you go ultimately to go cross-platform, right? If you want us to just stay on Windows, then by all means, leave it as is. And if I'm reading your mindset here, it's that, all right, I've got an existing standard framework application here. We're looking to migrate it to core. Let's get, as, let's get my implementation of core as close to standard as possible before we try compiling so that we, we only have a handful of things to fix instead of ton, enough that you're just like, we, got, we might as well start over. Mm. Right. Just try to make that a little less painful, but you're going to end up with a bunch of stuff you don't need when the when the time comes. It's it's, it's not just a big framework anymore. It's a bunch of new get packages, and you can scrape off the ones you don't need. Yeah, I mean, and it, like I said, at least it's going to compile, or it'll be close to compiling. Yeah, if it's going to work or not, that's a different story. But then the things that aren't working are generally the platform specific things. That's yeah, pretty cool. Well, uh, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to announce that during the last 10 minutes, I used the Compat Pack to port a legacy Windows app to the phone. Yes, I immobilized it. Uh, okay. <laughs> See what I did there? Immobilized? Demobilized? Emo. Immobilized. Oh, no. We're making puns on the guest, too. Well, you know. <laughs> Mr. Compact Pack. I love it. <laughs> 
It's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card. Compliments of Progress Telerik to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today, Telerik DevCraft. With more than 1,100 Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, you can easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, and desktop apps, as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing, and productivity tools, and comes with a range of support options. New this year is a free online training program for all license holders. And with this, alongside thousands of demos with source code, comprehensive docs, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with the Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial today at Telerik.com slash download. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Caius Bergeron. Oh, this is Caius. Bergeron. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Caius. And Caius just won a $200 Amazon gift card thanks to Progress Telerik just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member selected at random. But you got to sign up if you want to win. All right, Mo, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? <laughs> So I would probably, like, uh, I think last time you asked me, I said I would buy a bigger drone. <laughs> yeah. That is probably still true. I would probably still invest more in my photography stuff. But uh, Would you weaponize it? <laughs> uh, probably not. No. But uh, I would probably uh, get more drones because more drones are always better. That's, that's <laughs> the next step, you know, weaponizing. Or at least dropping firecracker bombs. Nice. That'd be fun. What <laughs> drone are you using now, Emo? I'm currently using the Mavic Pro, and I love it. Yeah. Good machine. It is such a schm like like to me. It's about the size. Right? The, the, there's there's bigger drones, but you don't carry them around, right? right? Like mm -hmm. you don't. And the best camera is the one that you have with you, right? That's the old wisdom. And uh, if I go on a hike and I can pack something that is like you know 400 grams or something, mm. I will probably carry it with me. But if it's like a 10 kilogram or 15 kilogram giant box, well then guess what? The drone remains at home. Yeah, you're not even yeah. gonna bring it. And you say you want to use a drone with bicycling. So there's a there's this new coming trend of like drones that are fully autonomous, right. where you just basically start them and they just track you. Right. Yeah. So if you are biking, you know, on a on a nice path, you just have these awesome shots where the drone is just following you through the forest, for example, avoiding right. trees and all of that. Yeah. And uh, you get really amazing footage of you riding the bike. And wow. the Mavic Pro definitely has active track, right? It does, but not to that extent. Yeah. Um, it's still like something you have to kind of like pay attention to. And I think the Mavic only has forward sensors and uh, upward facing sensors. It doesn't have anything to the sides. So it's not that good at maneuvering inside a forest. And there's like dedicated drones now that have like a gazillion sensors all, or, you know, all around it. And it will automatically avoid obstacles, you know, tree branches and all of that. And it's just from a technological standpoint, I find it super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but also from a, from a result point of view, it's awesome. It seems like DJI basically has the market sewn up. Like their their devices are so popular and so comprehensive. I don't know that anybody comes close to them. That is certainly true. I mean, GoPro yeah. tried, right? <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, they're not really close. Yeah, it's it's hard to do, but you can certainly burn a lot of cash over there. Yes, you can. Yep. <laughs> 
and uh, I just picked up cycling, and it's even more expensive there. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You could five. You could swallow up five grand in, in bicycling in no time at all. Just a few, a carbon fiber frame and a couple of carbon fiber rims, and you're done. <laughs> That's it. You don't even have a gear changer yet. That's right. Yeah. Five grand is basically half a bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I dig the frame, but those rims are brittle enough that you hit them hard and they, and they don't bend. They shatter and you're starting over. It's like time for a new rim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. No, make you sad. So uh, what's interesting now is in hindsight, realizing, I mean, I remember reading about the compatibility pack when you first announced it late last year, and I've been meaning to do this show for a while, is now with the Core 3 announcements and how they want to add in the new versions of WinForms and WPF. It's a, it very much is modeled after the same mindset of it's just a separate package that you add on. That's right. Although we probably will not make it a NuGet package. We will probably make it an optional, like a new concept that we come up with. And the reason for that is that NuGet packages have versions. Right. And the problem with version entities is that they can get out of sync with the framework you are targeting. That's the problem we have today with ASP.NET. Right. Where when you upgrade from .NET Core 2.0 to 2.1, you want the corresponding version of ASP.NET, not the 2.0 version of ASP.NET. Right, and and right. so, same with WinForms and WPF. Ideally, we can get to the point where you can just say, similar to how you do it on .NET Framework 2 way, where you just reference system.windows.formstore.dll, but you don't specify the version because you just get this whatever comes with the framework. Right. And so, we, we, come up, we, we try to come up with a model how we can have the same logic there, but you basically just say, I want WinForms or I want WPF not specifying a version and you just magically bind to the one that is the correct one for your platform. Right. Or your version of .NET Core, I should say. You seem to be describing a concept of not all version numbers are made equally, that the version of Core you're running dictates the versions of the other things you will run. So Core is the more important version number. Correct. All right. So, yeah, we don't want to know what the version number of the WPF or, or WinForms that will run against Core will even be. You just want it to look at the version of Core and go, I'll get that. And if I upgrade Core, it should upgrade that. And if I downgrade, you should also downgrade. Yes. And like that's the, because otherwise you have a, an inconsistent state that doesn't even run anymore. Right. And I can see that happening because you go and grab a new version of Core ahead of the new version of WinForms and go, uh-oh, now what? And it's like, well, let me downgrade you and take you back to to all of this, the version that has everything you want running in it. Right. Basically, you, the, the only thing you want to control is the, is the drop-down for the core platform, and then everything else should just follow in line. Whether you go up or you go down, you just want a consistent setting. It. Right. That's basically the goal. But if you, I mean, if you guys put out a new version of core ahead of new versions of other APIs, we may have to downgrade core. Like if, you know, you could, I could almost see a tool where it's like, find me the highest version number of everything that will work together. Yes, that's a hard problem. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, every single time I'm using package managers, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, well, this idea that there's actually a hierarchy to version number significance, right? That logically, core is your most important version number, and most other things are dictated from there. Right up until it doesn't work, until there's a problem with that. Yeah. Because you, know, you guys can't wait forever. Like You can't hold back releasing a version of Core while you wait for every other team to upgrade their things. You need to get that version out there. The people can upgrade to it, will upgrade to it. But yeah, maybe there's almost a, a version checking thing that as you go to upgrade Core, it checks all the packages to say, well, what's going to need to be replaced? Is that available before it goes ahead? Hmm. Yeah, that is kind of what, the, what we have done. I mean, we, we kind of try to make the 
platform itself, mm -hmm. at least in longer compose in terms of packages, right? So ASP.NET already kind of moved away from that. Like in 2.1, you no longer have a version number of ASP.NET in the package name because it's coming from the SDK. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. the idea is that the number of moving pieces that you have to worry about um, are, are just less, right? And then you only have to think about third-party components. And for those, the hope is that they are largely agnostic, right? They largely just work. Right. Because realistically, the, the, the biggest problems of Compat is usually within the framework itself. Because, you know, of course, our implementations depend on each other and they depend on the specifics on each other versus things that sit on top just depend on the public API surface. And that's a much cleaner and much easier thing to reason about. And yeah. um, so, you know, chances are if you upgrade from .NET Core, you know, 1.1 to 2.0, your NuGet packages don't have to be upgraded. They just continue to work because we did a good enough job with uh, backwards compatibility in the framework. Right? Right. But like within the framework layer itself, we really don't think about what will happen if you upgrade, you know, the core system underneath ASP.NET or the other way around. Yeah. And like, it's, it's very hard to reason about those things. And that's where stuff tends to break today too often. Yeah. Man, it's really hard to believe that there's 22,000 Windows specific APIs <laughs> in the framework. <laughs> Holy man. You know, I mean, I would have. probably more than that, actually. The framework is a quarter million APIs, so okay. 50,000 APIs. That's what's in .NET Framework. And then I would guesstimate that WinForms and WPF combined are probably on the order of between 50 and 100,000, I would say. Wow. Yeah, I guess, you know, when you put it that way. Yeah, but, I mean, most of the APIs are just, you know, properties or something, right? Right. And suddenly a small number like 20,000 sounds like good news when you're up against 250,000. What? You mean less than 10%? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And it goes to show you what actually did port. Yeah, right. I guess the question is, um, when I look at this list, and again, I'm on back on your blog post again of the these window. They're no, they weren't only Windows only ones, but they were really other APIs that were sort of adjacent to this problem. How many of these do you feel are more deprecated? Like you, you should be doing this a different way now. Yeah, that's a good question. I think deprecation is also somewhat in the eye of the beholder, right? Depending sure. on what your task is, something are more appropriate than others. Yeah. I would say, take SQL, right? If you build Facebook, SQL, you would probably think of this as deprecated, right? Because sure. you don't build a, a scalable cloud platform on top of the SQL server necessarily, right? I mm -hmm. mean, if you look at Stack Overflow, yes, they use SQL, but, you know, they use SQL like, you know, layered with like a million caches in front of it, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if you, if you build a cloud app, you really want to think about how you cache stuff, how you avoid recomputing things, like hitting the disk in particular, right? Right. And so if you optimize for that scenario, yep, SQL looks like a bad choice, right? Uh, other things like Cosmos or, or you know, uh, I forgot the other name. Uh, there's like caching solutions effectively that, that, that distribute stuff in memory so that, uh, you know, you don't have to hit the disk as much. And so those are more appropriate there. And the same is true in other cases. I mean, some people would think XML is deprecated and JSON is the new thing, right? But right. Again, it depends. If you have to write an XML file because that's what the customer needs or that's what the interface spec tells you to do, then XML is fine, right? Mm. And so like, there's, there's those kind of aspects and then there's just blatant technology choices that on our side are no longer up to date. I mean, you really shouldn't use ArrayList, right? You really shouldn't use Hashtable, right? You should really use list of T and, and dictionary, right? Or... Um, you know, same with like with performance counters, right? There's better ways to do diagnostics now. You really shouldn't use performance counters at all anymore. Um, and so I would say within the, you know, purely obsolete attack, I don't think it's even that much. I think, um, I would 
guess it's probably 15%, 20% of the compact pack at maximum. Mm. And the rest is just in the, well, whether you consider it obsolete or not depends on your scenario and your, uh, you know, how you use the technology. Um, and that is also what makes it really hard for us to have this binary decision, right? With the obsolete attribute of all, is it obsolete? Well, you know, it depends, right? <laughs> and so like sometimes the, the, you know, you have to give people guidance and say, well, depending on which app you're building, they're better and they're, they're worse choices to be made and consider what you want to get out of this and then make your choice you know, appropriately. What's, uh, what's the biggest hurdle people are going to run into when using the compatibility pack? I think the biggest problem is likely that people overestimate how many gaps it fills um, because it sounds like it's filling a lot. Like, I mean, it's you know, 22,000 APIs or whatever, so it's, it's significant in size. Right. Like I think like you know half of core or something, um, but you know if you have an existing desktop app, you know with WinForms and WPF, today the compact pack does not you know close that gap. Like right? you still have to rethink your UI, right? Uh, or if you're using ASP.NET MVC on .NET Framework, you still have to move to ASP.NET Core MVC, right? So there's still stuff you have to do in order to get to core. Um, and so depending on what app you have, like the bigger the app is, the more you know, Windowsms you have, the, the harder it will be to port it to core. Um, so what we usually do is we try to make it so that people think more from the bottom up. Like usually when people move to core, they don't move the whole app to core. They move part of the app to core. Yeah. You know, but let's say a particular web service or a particular console app or something. And then as they're doing this, they clearly want to share controls or components between you know, the existing desktop app that they still have to maintain until they have parity on core and then new investments in core. And that's where the standard kicks in, and you can also reference the compact pack from the standard. And I saw that a lot of people were confused about why you can reference the compact pack from standard, but the reason is that you don't, you don't want to you know, have to compile your own class libraries multiple times. You yes. just want to have one class library that can work on framework and core with no changes. And then again, you just have an if check for the registry and either use it or you don't. Yes, that class library will know depending on how you write it, not work cross-platform. But, you know, even today you can write .NET standard libraries that only work on Windows, right? If you, if you don't use the path APIs correctly, for example, and you just put backslashes everywhere, then that thing will not work on Linux either, right? So, like, you can always write code that it's not cross-platform. But the idea is that the standard is really the thing that abstracts away the .NET platform for you. And then, sure, it would be nice if it also abstracts the OS for you, but that depends on what you care about, right? If you, if you only care about core on Windows, then, well, then... Who cares, right? Right. Um, so, like, planning your own migration, I think, is the is the biggest hurdle usually, um, and that is something that highly depends on your own goals. Um, in fact, I can probably plug my own uh, MSDN article here. Like, I wrote a whole article on how you should go about porting your app, mm -hmm. and uh, I talk a lot about how you should approach it and how you should start thinking about these things. I mean, if you just do a tiny project, sure, big migration works probably. If you you know, port something larger, you know, an existing code base with 50 to 250,000 lines of code, mm. that gets more challenging. And if you really do something big, like, you know, you know, a million lines of code or two million lines of code, then you're very unlikely to succeed in a big move, right? You really want to think about what do you really want to move to core? What really benefits from being on core in the first place? And um, then, you know, act accordingly. And then maybe also just remove some of your own features that no, none of your customers are using anymore, right? So modernize right. your own app as a, as a part of the move, right? And because the you know the less code you have to port, <laughs> the better you're off. Yeah, the, and the more likely you're actually be able to pull this off, right? Like I got to think people are triaging. It's like, can I make the move to core? 
and and they're looking at that warning and, and error list as as sort of their gauge. So the more you can make those you know errors become warnings, the more likely they're going to go. Yeah, I think we can probably get this. Right, and that's that's the other thing that I usually tell people is like you know don't start with source code, start with your binaries. Oh yeah. Right. Throw your existing application in one folder. Use the API port tool that we have to point it at the binaries, and then you get a, a you know an Excel spreadsheet as an overview that gives you module by module how portable you are. And if you look at your own module names, you usually have you know some sort of architecture, right? It's like I don't know, businesslogic.dll and there's data access layer.dll, there's presentation.dll. So you usually know what's in there, right? And then yeah, you're not shocked hopefully when you see presentation.dll is five percent portable. <laughs> Uh, but when you look at your business logic or your data access logic, and that's you know seventy five percent portable, then you have to think about okay, what's the remaining twenty five percent that I need to get this thing running? Because those are the things you probably want to run on multiple platforms, right? And and so what we see is with customers, I mean, you know, we have an actual team that engages with customers. The first thing they do is running this tool and go with them over the report and say, you know, why is this not more portable? It seems like it should be more portable. Or you know, how do you think about planning your UI migration? What what technologies do you have in mind? And so this is usually a good um, point also to reevaluate your own architecture and make sure that your understanding of your own app is actually up to date, which is probably also not always the case because, you know, code changes over time and the architecture that you made up a few years ago is no longer, you know, the actual architecture. And um, so all these things help in the, in the migration. Yeah, I can see understanding all that being important. Yeah. So where do we start? Do we start with your blog post? Do we start with the, uh, the project? I would say I, w- I would generally start with the blog post. It's basically the you know the one-stop shop for. I think I even linked the MSDN article from the blog post. Um, and if not, you can easily find it by just searching for my name on in your favorite search engine. I didn't write that many articles; <laughs> it should show up very quickly. Um, and that that uh, that talks about this. I think using the Compat Pack itself is super easy. You just add a new package reference. Right? People know how to do that. But, um, usually, you want to do this because you're porting an app and. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily a clear-cut exercise because it highly, highly depends on what you want to port, how much you want to port, and whether it's a class library or a NuGet package or an application, right? And and so the my article kind of walks you through all of these scenarios a little bit, um, but in the end, like yeah, you have to, you know, it's kind of like plan your own adventure kind of thing, right? It's super exciting to move to core, but it's also not something that is, you know, super cheap, right? Because you have to think about your app that you designed for Windows, designed for WinForms. Now you think of this as a cross-platform website running in a container, right? Like that's a very different environment and clearly your code has to adapt somehow to take advantage of those things. Right. Well, it sounds great, Mo. Thanks a lot for uh, letting us know about it and talking to us about it. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. 
And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmit a band by the MCC.